Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, my name is Andre and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast. Uh, I'm here with... Again, the whole team, it's Owen and Vansh, and uh, it's the day after we've recorded our last episode about the Nadal-Djokovic final in Rome, which was really fun. And just because we're, we're in the, reaching the apex of the, uh, of the clay season, uh, we're in Roland Garros, we just decided to be talking about um, um, a few things today, just also because Roger Federer has just returned, returned to Geneva he unfortunately lost as we are recording this. So, um, but honestly, it's not too much to worry about. If you're a fan, he has been out. He only played like two matches this season, only one, one. Uh, I mean, I guess for now he played three matches, but like regardless. Um, and when I revisit another era of his career in which he was, you know, much better, I guess, and much more healthy, much younger. And the time is the 2009 Roland Garros, um, tournament in which he actually won and it's his only french open to date well not that i'm assuming that he's gonna win another one but like who knows like it's still roger federer right so how are you guys doing today yeah doing doing great uh it feels good to relive some old matches um from from the french open and i guess uh it's a good topic to discuss because roger has been out of the game as we know for uh, quite a bit of time struggling with double knee surgery and injuries. And so I feel like this is a good way to kind of honor his return to the French Open. And, um, you know, we never know now that he's almost 40 and this could be his his last French Open ever. And so uh, it's good to revisit when he became the champion. Yeah, I'm I'm doing well as well. This is a nice topic. As you guys know, I love to uh, relive old matches. And this is a pretty momentous tournament in tennis history. So I'm really excited to get into it. Yeah. And uh, just because my intro wasn't exactly as flaring uh, to- towards Roger Federer, it could have been a little bit more spark, but I'm just going to let the uh, the writer of the group actually add all the adjectives into that uh, that run that Roger Federer did. His only French Open final, I mean, not final, but title. Um, so, Owen, why don't you explain a little bit more of the context in which we're speaking? <laughs> well, that was quite the introduction and quite a lot of pressure. So thank you for that. <laughs> but yeah, no problem. So... At this point in history, uh, the tennis landscape on the ATP was very different from how it is today. Roger Federer in 2009 had sort of just ended a four-year or three-and-a-half-year period of a really astonishingly high peak. He was winning pretty much everything for a few years. He won four major, sorry, three majors in 2004, 2006, and 2007. He got two in 2005, but he only lost four times that entire season. And then in 2008, we finally saw that 
crazy streak of dominance start to come to an end a little bit. Um, he notably lost in the Australian Open semis to Djokovic. Then he lost that classic Wimbledon final to Nadal. But at the end of the year, he won the U.S. Open against Andy Murray for his 13th major. And so it looks like things were sort of back on the upswing for Federer. Um, and at the start of 2009, he was ranked number two behind Nadal. And he started his year by making the Australian Open final. On the way there, he beat Tomas Burdich from two sets down. That was really impressive. And then in the final, it was a pretty wonderful match overall. And Federer played quite well, with the exception of his serve and converting break points, and ended up losing 6-2 in the fifth. And that was a really devastating loss for him. And I don't think he played quite that well after that match for a little bit, because in Indian Wells, um, which was the next big tournament he played after the Australian Open, he lost to Andy Murray in the semifinals, and that was 6-1 in the third. And so that felt like kind of a jarring loss. And then in Miami, he played Djokovic, and this was the match where Federer had that famous racket smash, uh, down 2-0 in the third set after having been a setup. I think he went on to lose that 6-2 or 6-3 in the third. And then going on to the clay season, things didn't pick up immediately. In Monte Carlo, uh, he was actually taken out in straight sets by Stan Wawrinka. And we know how great that matchup is for Federer, so that was pretty surprising. And then in Rome, at this point, um, in tennis history, I guess, although it's still pretty recent, uh, the ATP would play uh, Rome before Madrid. So Madrid was the last Masters 1000 before the French Open. So in Rome, Federer lost in three to Djokovic. I think this was the semifinals. Yeah. And he had been up a break. He had been up a set. And then he had been up a break in the second and the third. So this was kind of a rough loss. But then heading into Madrid, uh, things really started to turn around because, so he, first of all, he made the final. And on the other side of the draw, Nadal and Djokovic absolutely made each other bleed with a four-hour, three-minute semifinal, uh, eventually won by Nadal after saving some match points. And so it was a Federer-Nadal final that Federer did really well to win. Uh, a lot of people will tell you that Nadal never had a chance in that one because his legs had been taken out. But I think Nadal had more break points overall in the match than Federer. And we know how difficult a matchup this was for Federer. So this was still a really impressive win. He ended up taking it 6-4, 6-4 for his second career win and his last career win against Nadal on clay. And so, so he was Madrid champion. And even though this was his first big title of the year, it was a really good note to head into Roland Garros on. Uh, and so now I'll let one of you two pick it up since we're up to that point in uh, in history. So two thousand. Yeah, that was a that was a f- uh, fantastic overview and rundown of his <laughs> entire two thousand nine season. Well done, uh, Owen. Yeah, I probably went on a little on bit, that, but for the research on that, and I do remember the um, the Djokovic loss at Miami very well, where he um, where he had that outburst and smashed his racket, and then in the press conference he said, "Thank God the hardcore season is over." which for him, that was a quite a surprising statement at the time because obviously we knew the hard courts and the grass is where he uh, you know, had most of his best results and he didn't have um, as many rivals that could hurt him on those days where he was at his best. And so for him to say that he's, he was really, I think, targeting the clay season he had had um, you know, plenty of time between Miami and I guess to that was a those were difficult losses in that period where you know he didn't have where he had a good chance he thought um in the fifth set against Rafa Nadal in the AO final and he kind of um let himself down he felt and so he was in he was in tears after that loss and would have been the the tournament where he would have tied Pete Sampras so um considering all those things combined it was a monumentous 
achievement that eventually he went on to achieve. And, you know, you hit it right when you said Madrid is kind of where he found his form again, because it's, um, although it's clay, it's kind of a surface that helps Federer's attacking game, I would say a lot. And it, it helps to serve, it helps his forehand, it helps um, kind of the ingredients of his game that, uh, that would allow him to to thrive in those conditions. And we saw a lot of drop shots and a lot of use of um, the drop shot is something I guess we'll get onto more because he deployed that quite a lot in a lot of his matches um, in the 2009 Roland Garros. But, um, you know, Roger was coming into this one feeling good that he just won Madrid, but I don't think he expected to win the Roland Garros in 2009. So until something happened, <laughs> <laughs> spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like it, it, it's, it's not like, um, Considering that just because I already kind of spilled the beans, uh, spoiler alert, Rafael Nadal lost to Robin Sorling. It's not like it's uh, any important fact in tennis, you know, anyways. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah. as in, like, Roger Federer had to do well enough to stay alive in before Nadal uh, lost to Sorling. So, yeah. You, yeah, you, you can right. imagine that the pressure only built onto him, like, after he. Like he kind of probably sensed that his time could be coming. Like now that Nadal is not in the draw, he he probably had had this feeling that like he can beat anyone. Um, he, he, even though it's not like he didn't feel like he, he could beat Nadal ever, but like he probably felt like I am a hundred percent sure that I can beat anyone, mm-hmm. but I am probably like seventy five percent sure that I could beat Nadal if he's yeah. on a bad day, type of thing. But I don't know. I, I will say Unquiet. that going in, going into Roland Garros, the uh, apart from Rafa, you know, there was one other rival that was really thriving at this time. And that was actually Novak Djokovic because he'd yeah. had a phenomenal clay court season himself. You know, mm-hmm. he'd made the Miami final. Obviously we talked about the win over Federer, could but have, then he went on a, number two. If, if he uh, finished off Nadal in Madrid. Yeah. He, yeah. He I mean, he, he was one match away from, from achieving that. And, you know, he had, he, he'd uh, done well in all three of the, of the masters tournaments. And so for him, it was, I mean, he'd made the Monte Carlo final. He'd made the Rome final lost both those matches to to Rafa in the end. And obviously the Madrid won, and he'd also won Belgrade in his hometown. And so he was coming in really sharp into the French Open, a bit worn out, obviously, with all those with all those matches, but at the same time, a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, he unfortunately went out in the third round to Philip Kolschreiber, 4-4-4. Four, four, and, four. and I guess, uh, you know, that that was another th- that was another thing that um, I, I guess at the time was surprising because since then I mean obviously that's the only match since 2006 that Djokovic has um, lost before the quarters at Roland Garros. Yeah, and he, if I'm not mistaken, he hasn't lost one before the quarters since then either. Um, yes, you're right. Yeah, and and just for an an additional bit of context because I'm glad you guys brought this up um, and I forgot to mention it in the, in the intro bit I did, but. Before Madrid and even before the final of Madrid, the sense was really that it was Nadal and Djokovic, and um, Nadal had won the last four Roland Garros titles, and um, and so even after Djokovic had been consistently challenging him, the sense going into Roland Garros was that like he was going to win it, and he was going to win it easily. Um, his loss to Soderling has been referred to as uh, the biggest upset in tennis history by some, and uh, and his main challenger was looking to be Djokovic because even though he lost all three of their matches. In the clay season lead up, they were just playing this really, really animalistic tennis. Uh, it was just wars of attrition, 30 plus shot rallies. I mentioned their match in Madrid was four hours. Um, and so it really looks like it was going to be the two of them. But then uh, then Federer toppled Nadal in the Madrid final. And that really, I think, brought his confidence back uh, just in time for Paris. 
Mm-hmm. I guess we can talk a little bit now about his his actual paths to the title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, if we start out, I mean, he played right away a, a Spaniard who's pretty adept on the surface, and he, he, I guess, for a first round, it was a draw that he he would have liked. Yeah. And uh, you know, he came through, I guess, in straight sets four, three, and two. And but I guess in the second round is where things got pretty difficult when he's played. He was facing um, Argentinian Jose Acasuso. Um, you know, somebody that he's had, somebody that he'd had success against before. And, but this time it just felt like he was having to work really hard to win, win a lot of points. And he, he was having, he was not in his, uh, he was not in hundred percent of his best form. He was having a lot more ups and downs and dips and his opponent was seizing on them and playing very consistently and making him earn every point. And so this was a very, uh, this was a very uh, hard-fought fourth set victory in the end for Federer, but he found himself, um, you know, trailing in this match. He was down. He had won the first set um, in a tiebreak, ten eight in the first set, mm-hmm. and then he 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 had lost the second one, seven um, five, and then you know Akasuso had all the momentum and he was he looked hungry and gunning for the upset, and he was five one up in the third set, and obviously he served for it at five two, and he had two two breaks. Um, to a two-break lead, and you know he was forty thirty up, and he had set point. And so, I guess, what what were your guys' impressions of of this match and how Federer ducked through and found a way to win? Because it was not pretty tennis. Yeah, uh, I mean, first, first thing that comes to mind first first thing that comes to mind is that um, you know, like it, when when people say that Federer isn't strong mentally, I guess you you have more than enough proof in here, and uh, finding a way to win in his quote-unquote um worse surface um he it's it's funny that when you look at this draw and like just in general like his his matches he only had it straightforward in the first round pretty much and then after that like it was only it was only brutal until until the final where he probably had like mostly just on nerves um and just anxiety from like the chance of winning the title but yeah like i i think um when you play obviously like south americans you always sort of uh have to pay attention to what you're doing because they're really good on clay like if if not only if not necessarily like the best shot makers um aside from probably homatinda potro um you you still have like them like being really fit and really able to endure like tough conditions including the sun and, and the heat uh and and they'll also rally from the background from the the baseline um forever so like i guess for federer who likes to play fast and things like that um obviously helped him that he had been already like a veteran on on uh on tennis and he already knew how to play on clay and as vanch mentioned he it's not like he never knew akasuso <clears throat> he was not necessarily an up-and-coming player or anything like that so <clears throat> he had time to find his way through and uh you know keep himself strong and come back from a double breakdown really and uh still win yeah. this match i and think it's it was interesting it really I think because, from, uh, for, for his mental mental fortitude yeah and and you know he had a one-handed backhand um akasuso and yeah, he was yeah. able to really use uh i thought a lot of spin and push federer back behind the baseline where he's not where he wasn't as comfortable and so then he was using that and then opening up the court and taking advantage with his with his forehand and like you mentioned i mean south americans they can rally forever on the clay and they have good footwork and just they work extremely hard they have high spin rates on their shots and and i think you know that's not particularly a player that 
Roger was finding comfortable that day when he was struggling, especially when he's struggling with his own game. He was unable to take the ball on the rise. He was having to hit a lot of shots shoulder high. And, you know, obviously it was a little bit windy and it was kicking up on his backhand. And so he had to deal with a lot of these elements. And obviously he used his variety and his guile to kind of get him out of situations. Mm-hmm. He, he tried to mix in a lot more variety and get get his opponents out of the baseline rhythm for a lot of this match because he knew that he was going to be, he was that's the only way he was going to be able to impose his game when his, when he's not quite able to hit through the opponent on the given day. And so we saw a lot of use of the slice backhand and some drop shots and some, some good feel as well. And then also some scrapping and defending when he really needed to. And so I think he, he found a, he found a good mix on the big points, but it was not necessarily the most pretty and easy flowing Roger Federer match, I would say. No, it wasn't. And I remember two points in particular from when I watched the highlights earlier, the first so Federer actually saved set points in the first set and the third set. Mm-hmm. And in the first, in the tiebreak, which he eventually won 10-8, I think Akasuso had a set point at 8-7. I don't remember whose serve it was, but it was a rally, one of those rallies that just seems to go on forever. And, yeah. um, and it was pretty even, but Federer was making everything, and I think it ended, it ended when Akasuso either shanked or just hit way long. And then the other point I remember is when Akasuso was serving up 5-2, 40-30 in the third set. This is an amazing position to take a two sets to one lead. And he hit a really good serve down the middle. But Federer hit a great sort of stretch forehand return, uh, got the whole strength of his arm behind it. And so he hit like a deep inside-out forehand return, and Akasuso gets it back. And then Federer forces an error with uh, a good cross-court forehand. And then he went on to break there, eventually get back on serve. And then he won the tiebreak pretty comfortably, and then the fourth set going away. So, um, so this was just a great early illustration of his fight, I thought, because he was in some really, really uncomfortable positions in this match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if we continue on, I'm, I'm, you know, it didn't. It in terms of getting off to a quick start, it didn't get quite so comfortable from then on because um, then he played a Frenchman ranked 35 in the world at the time, Paul Henry Matu. And what I remember about Paul Henry Matu is I will never forget the 2006 French Open match that he played against Nadal, which is Nadal's longest ever match at the French Open. And um, I want to say it was the third or fourth round in 2006, where... Um, it was fourth uh, round. Yeah, <clears throat> fourth round, you're right. And Nadal won it 5-7-6-4-6-4-6-4, but he had to dig so deep. And it was... Like mm-hmm. four hours and fifty Matthew minutes. Was playing really, really well. Yeah, and and this is actually more of a guy who is, uh, who 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 likes to take the ball as early, and he he likes to take the ball early. He likes to. He has a big, strong backhand um, as well, double hander, and this was a bit of a different opponent than Akasuso, um, in this regard. And so I think Federer was having to play a lot of tennis on his on the back foot, and he wasn't getting a lot of first serves in, from what I recall in the in the highlights that I watched, and so wasn't able to quite get that rhythm going on his serve. And that's where Federer frees up, I feel like, when he gets a lot of first serves in play and he uses that serve plus one a lot more. And uh, Akasuso mm-hmm. was pinning him back deep with good, strong returns, um, doing very well in the cross-court rallies, um, getting Federer off his comfort zone and making him defend. And, and uh, you know, I mean, Federer was putting up good resistance, but I think he only really, really later found his rhythm when he lost that first set. Then he... There were some close moments early in the second set, but Federer lifted, and the crowd and the crowd also was um, 
uh, Mathieu had a lot of support from the French crowd. So that was helping him, that was willing him on to push this, push this and make this quite a fight. And so again, once again, Federer coming back from a set down and, and winning this one. Uh, he again showed some great fight. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have much to add to that. Um, I actually wasn't able to see the highlights of that one. I picked some other matches to uh, watch the highlights of from his run. Um, how about you, Andre? Yeah, same same here in a way. I focused on uh, looking at the Tommy Haas match on the first round, which... Yes, uh, so this is the, this is a match that I think we yeah. all three of us know a lot better. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, even for me, yeah. for the third round, I must admit, it was more of just a refresher and looking back from what I do remember, because this is when I remember I was really um, kind of into watching the majors because my parents would turn it on and I would I would get interested in the French Open and Wimbledon. And yeah. I always knew there was this one guy and my dad always referred to him as the, the man with the sleeveless shirt. Just so I could remember, I could picture that that man is Nadal. Nadal? And, yeah, and he likes yeah. clay. And then there's Roger who plays with a one-handed backhand and likes grass. So that's kind of what it, it, these. This is more. This podcast is kind of nostalgia for me because it's also reliving my early tennis yeah. stand-up days, and that's that's the beauty of doing these relives. But I guess if we look that's at the round cool. of sixteen, um, you know, Tommy Haas. Yeah, yeah for, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was yeah. just going to say, like, if we're, if we're talking about, like, a round of 16 matches, um, the one thing that I remember is that, like, I was a bit upset at, at that time in 2009 because, um, mm-hmm. well, Nadal had been winning four French Open straight, right? And nobody yeah. could touch him. And then he just won Wimbledon and then the Australian Open over Federer was number one. So he, he looked pretty um, unbeatable at that point in his, in his career. Yeah. Um, but, like, I, I remember I was I remember very clearly like I had no hopes that anybody would ever uh not not ever but like would win the French Open that year if that was a year that Nadal was the favorite it would have been 2009 back then obviously like now there's a different story but like uh, I uh, I was away oh with my family I was in um I wasn't I was in a mall I think we were in a furniture shop or something like this and um <laughs> there was a TV and and then I saw the score for for Soderling Rafa Nadal and I couldn't believe my eyes because I thought like they must have made a mistake with the uh how the score was going because I was I thought that there's no way Nadal is losing two sets two one to a guy that at the time I had never heard of um so even though he was number 30 uh, 23 like in a uh, uh, seated player so but then yeah, and then um... like I was so incredibly surprised by that but like yeah that, that was my moment of nostalgia right now if you guys <laughs> want to move on to back to Roger Federer <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, I, I'm actually really glad you brought that match up because um, I think it's important to address to address that too. Because this this match against Tommy Haas that we're going to talk about soon is was the day after Nadal had gone out. So imagine yeah. the weight and the pressure on Federer's shoulders to lift this title, knowing that this may be the best chance he could ever have yeah. to hoist this trophy. And you know, just given how Nadal was so dominant, and nobody expected him at that point to lose to Robin Soderling, mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. um, they played a match against each other in Rome, and Soderling won the first game, but then after that, it was twelve games in a row on the trot for Nadal, and he was really, you know, these two had had a had had a history of previous matches where there was a little bit of an edge. Uh, between the two, they didn't quite get along. Um, Soderling and Nadal, I'm talking about. And yep. so, I, you know, Soderling always rubbed Nadal the wrong way with his water bottles and some of his antics. And they played a five-set match at Wimbledon in 2007. But regardless of that, um, going into going into the Nadal match, you still probably thought Nadal is a heavy, heavy favorite. 
And it was one of those rare, rare days where Nadal's forehand was dropping extremely short and Soderling was pouncing and he was hitting winners. I mean, he was playing out of his mind in, mm-hmm. for three sets and he was somehow able to get over the finish line um, you know, even after he lost the second set and he won fourth set in a tie break. And it was this huge, huge story at the time. And, um, you know, who is this tall Swede who comes out of nowhere? I mean, it's not essentially out of nowhere, but it's... Um, we well, I guess say, when you it, come it, in the, into Rolling Arrows and you beat Nadal, it's, it's a little bit out, it's of out of nowhere. nowhere for anyone. It's out of nowhere yeah. for for anyone's... For, for it to cross anyone's imagination at that point. So... Yeah. You know, and and credit to him because he had beaten Ferrer the round before, and then to then mm-hmm. go and beat Nadal like this, it's it was uh, it really next thing you know it just lit up for Federer, and yeah. everyone was and expecting him to win. Anything less than yeah. a championship at this point would have been would have been a disappointment. Would have been a disappointment. Yeah. Been a disappointment. And, and really quickly, I think a lot of people will try to asterisk the match with Nadal and Soderling, and they'll say that Nadal's knees were shot and that Madrid had really taken him, it out of him. And I think to an extent that's true, but I also just want to say. Up to this point in the tournament, Nadal had not lost a set. So Soderling deserves a ton of credit for winning this match because he did play insanely good tennis. And I think it also had a huge impact on the first two sets of Federer-Haas because, like you said, Mm -hmm. like you guys said, I think as soon as this result happened and Federer was like, okay, Djokovic is already out, now Nadal is out, this is the best chance I'm going to get. This may be the best chance I'm ever going to get because... Uh, 2005 to 2008 he'd lost to Nadal in Paris each year and now suddenly like the monster had taken a night off basically you know um who was just tormenting him there year after year so I think the pressure just must have increased exponentially even even though his eyes must have lit up as well mm-hmm. yeah and I guess we should talk about the Tommy Haas match because yeah um you know like you mentioned Haas won the first two sets he won the first set in a tie break uh, and then he won the second set as well, 7-5. And um, I guess what were your recollections of the first two sets of this of this encounter and how? What I can tell from it is that uh, Haas was completely up to Federer's challenge at that point. He was uh, hitting his backhand beautifully. He was moving beautifully. His forehand was amazing, serving incredibly well. Uh, he was just frustrating Federer because he was not backing down, and he, he was making he was making ridiculous shots. And like even with the the backhand, which is also one one handed uh, backhand, um, he was able to you know trouble Federer here and there, and like use use of the slice and things like that. Um, so yeah, like for a lot of that set, like it was just uh, a lot of the, those two sets, well, three sets and a half really. Um, it was just that. Haas was just too good. Federer was not finding much of a of a groove in his uh, first serve, though. Um, so he was yeah. He, he only was able really to find it like by the end of the third set, um, mm-hmm. and then on onwards. But um, Federer was just being frustrated by one his his lack of uh, first serves, and he wasn't being able to. He actually had a few unforced errors were really strange, also. Um, but also much credit to Haas for frustrating him even more. So he could not. Um, Federer could not find any rhythm or any space to work um, his his game because Haas was just like on him, like he was just all over him, honestly. Yeah. So yeah, what I remember is that Haas was playing quite well, and Federer wasn't necessarily horrible. I thought he was playing well, but he was like slightly erratic, and mm-hmm. Haas was um, 
a bit better in the big moments. And I think credit to him because he also recognized sort of the magnitude of this opportunity because I think while Federer's eyes must have lit up after Nadal went out, I think everyone else's did too. And Haas oh, yeah. playing Federer must have realized, you know, if I somehow win this match, Nadal and Djokovic are out as well. Like, what's to stop me from winning this major? Um, and so I think, and so I think, uh, for a while, he really made the most of that opportunity, and and was really taking it to Federer for two sets, two sets and a half, really. Yeah, um, I would say that's pretty good, and uh, that's a pretty good way of describing it because I mean, Federer was just a tad bit off, but mm-hmm. but Haas still had to seize that opportunity and that moment, and yeah. I mean, he. He, he he's a guy who who's comfortable playing Roger. I mean, you know, they've played a few, they've played quite a few times before that. And, you know, early stages, you know, Haas had won two of their first three encounters. And this was a guy who, um, you know, had pushed Federer to five sets at the 2006 Australian Open. He had taken sets off of him on grass and clay and hard. And, you know, he was one of his contemporaries and sort of one of the guys along with the Hewitts and the Nalbandians of the world that, you know, was having early was having success a lot earlier in his career, and so he was quite from quite familiar because margins are so small in tennis. You know, even though Federer started taking over and winning these rivalries against all of these players in his prime, you know, next thing you know, you're a little bit off on one day and you're missing a few first serves. It doesn't take that much for um, for a veteran like Haas to turn his game around, and his backhand is rewarded on this surface was being rewarded as well because he had that little bit of extra time to to hurt Federer and he could change directions with it. He could use slice. He has good variety and, you know, plays a little bit like Roger himself. And so if Roger's a little off, um, that's all it wouldn't really take. But I guess the pattern continued for two sets and a half and Federer found himself serving at three, four, 30, 40. And what we're about to talk about is arguably the greatest is arguably the most important point, you know, of Roger Federer's tennis career here mm-hmm. because he's on the brink of defeat. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm going to let one of you guys talk about it, but I just want to say really quick, at 30-all, Federer got a look at a short forehand, and I think and that's the kind of shot that he hits for a winner all the time. I think a lot of people expected it to be a winner, and it, it either went long or it went wide and long, and it was just a really ugliness. And so at this point, he was down two sets in break point, and I think for a lot of people, the match really felt over because after after he missed that shot, I think it just sort of seems like it was the sense that it's it's not his day, and um, and he's tried, he's battled, but he just can't really get his game on track. Mm. And yeah. and did that ever change? So one of you two, uh, go ahead and talk about the shot. Yeah, and and what a stark difference from um, the next point, right? Because because uh, <laughs> it, it was obviously the moment where like Haas could have broken Federer and served for the match at like five uh, three. As always, like not necessarily any guarantee that this would have meant that uh, Haas would have won, but you know, at at this point, you're against every single odd. You know, like there, there's nothing, there's nothing that you 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 can be at in a worse position than like down two sets and a break, uh, and the, the, your opponent serving serving for the match, um, and I guess at that at that moment. Maybe one of the th- maybe a couple of things changed in in Federer's mind, like in in a way, like he just hit a really poor shot that he should have won. Uh, he's now at break. Um, his his is now down a break point, and his opponent could be serving for the match, and all of his hopes could be like crushed, like immediately a day after Nadal loss, he would lose in the same round, and Nadal lost would have been. Um, probably the most devastating moment in his career um maybe even worse than the australian open and wimbledon 2008 so 
Yeah. Um, I, I guess so. it, it would have been really devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and, but, and, but the thing is, <laughs> I guess at that moment, he, he just kind of, he probably relaxed a bit and he ended up finding a really good second serve um, out wide and another just, just ran around his, his backhand like routinely and just pumped off like an, an incredible forehand out wide, just landed on the line. There's no chance for Haas to, to pick it up. And, and then he goes back and wins this game. I think he, I think Haas had another break point or was it just like, I think this was afterwards? the only one of the game. This yeah. was the only one of the, yeah. of, of this game. But what struck me is that after he made that, that decision or bad enforcer that you guys are referring to the point before, I mean, he really took his time and, knew and he sensed how pivotal this point would be. I mean, he, you know, Federer's not a guy who takes a lot of time in between points, but after this, he went to his towel. He started, you could tell he was thinking like calibrating, like, okay, how, because now I have nothing to lose. You know, now it's, it's now or never for me. Yeah. And so he sort of went into, he sort of went into overdrive mode, you know, where he, he yeah. almost thought like, okay, let me, let me just, let me just go for it and just play for strike tennis. Like I know how to play. And let's let's see if it's too good. If it's too it's too good, it's too good. Yeah. So he misses the first serve, and then he hits that second serve, and it's like a kicker out wide to yeah. on the ad side to Tommy Huss's backhand, and Huss gets decent depth on the return. It's not like a super short ball that Federer can take early and then come in and maybe often approach and volley it because I mean if Huss covers that ground, it's it's still dangerous for for Federer. He might have to do like a half volley pickup or or or, or something, and it could turn ugly, but. Federer held his ground and was so quick to run around his backhand and make that make that shot of forehand. And this forehand that he hits inside out is like a line licking forehand winner. It's it is so yeah. it, it is like centim- we're talking like millimeters. If it's a little bit further wide, I mean he gets broken and now Haas is serving at five three. And yeah. Haas can't do anything about it. He just says too good mm-hmm. because I mean this was it was way off. Was, he, he had, had there was absolutely nowhere. He yeah, was absolutely yeah. nowhere near the ball. Yeah, and and there was just nothing he could do about it. The the accuracy and precision of that shot. I mean, Federer will remember that shot. I'm assuming after he retires or when he has more time to reflect on it or when he goes back and watches. I mean, he will remember that point. Uh, absolutely, and I think, and and it's it's this historic shot, right? Like it's always talked about as the most important shot he hit that tournament and maybe even of his career. But I think what happened in that moment, like you were talking about, Vaughn, when he takes a few extra seconds to collect himself when he was down two sets in a break point. That is a huge deficit. That is too big a deficit to be thinking about the finish line when you're behind. At that point, all you're thinking about is, let me win the next point, and then we'll go from there. And so I think he did exactly what champions do, which is he he took a second, he collected myself, and he decided, okay, well, if I'm going down, I'm going to go down with my best shot. And he gave himself a look at a forehand. Um, At this point, probably considered the best forehand in history, and he let it fly, and he was brave. His bravery was rewarded. Yeah. yeah. And the amount of liber the how liberated he must have felt when he made that shot. And just yeah. I guess I guess you could say he felt liberated when he started when he started the next game and started getting looks at a break point to mm-hmm. to yeah. then take that set because the next two and a half sets were were Our one of those federal yeah. federal clinics. They were amazing. And I think after that point he was also a little relieved. I'm not sure if I'm misremembering this, but in my head, the picture of him fist pumping after he saves the break point is he kind of holds his fist like a little bit close yeah. to his chest. And in my head, he's just kind of thinking like, thank God the dream is still like a little bit alive. And yeah. um, and so I think after that happened, you guys are right. 
Uh, he was liberated, but but in my head, the picture after he wins that point is just that moment of of relief where he's like, "Thank goodness, um, I." I it's like I a deep breath moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What I remember from the last two sets, from what I what watched in the extended highlights that I picked up, um, it's just that Federer really just hit hit. You know, he hit like the tracks. You know, the the train has finally like got got on the tracks, and he was finally going. He felt like relaxed. He felt like calm, and um, not like Kaz was playing um, incredibly well. He wasn't playing as much as as well as he was doing. But Federer also like raised his level significantly from that point on. His his was he was acing left and right. He was serving incredibly well. Um, he was not missing one of those those weird forehands that he missed like to uh, go down a break point um, and. One of the things that may have happened to Haas, uh, because he was also coming back from injury, so he might have um, he might have not had much to give anymore after that. He he also might have sensed that, like j- just like the um... one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The the Veneto match that Federer played, I guess they must have felt like, uh, you know, I, I got to win this, like not in five, because if it goes to, to five sets, I probably won't have it in me. Like I probably won't have it in my legs to run off to the next ball, you know, and I feel like this a little bit of what happened to Haas. But he played really well afterwards. Like it's just a Federer just back on to, you know, being his his regular Roger Federer self, like just calm and collected, just really focusing on his on his own thing and just bouncing the ball like two, three times before he goes for a serve. And that was about it. So in kind of like a really a much bigger difference in behavior from Federer in the last three in the last two sets than in the first two. Yeah, and I mean the the you mentioned the serve, the way he was able to find the serve. I mean, in that in that fourth set, it was like he just thought, okay, Roger, you got to serve better, and he just did it. It was like he just flipped the switch, and once he got out of that, once he got out of that third set, I mean, it was just like he was pushing Haas all around the court, and yeah. Haas was lo- Haas was losing his court positioning and that belief, that shot tolerance because Federer was was also deploying a lot of other other shots in his game because he knew that if he could just if he just started rallying cross court backhand to backhand you know Haas might find his rhythm again and so he mixed he started mixing things up he started slicing a little bit down the line he started opening up the forehand and in those days his running forehand was a big was a big uh, point for him because he could uh you know he hit his running forehand better than he does these days for sure mm-hmm. and so he was using that defense of his well and he was getting back in rallies and he was hitting drop shots and 
there was one point where he in the fifth set where actually where he where he got the break and he just hit this drop shot slice backhand return off a second serve and Haas is Haas is just like you're gonna do that to my serve really like (laughs) (laughs) like you know at least let me keep let's try to keep this to one break you know in the fifth set Rogers Roger wanted that security and he got the double break eventually and then it was just inevitable and he just the way he just let the match crack the match open and just let it fly it was um it must have felt so good you know he must have really felt like once he got out of that Haas match this is on my racket now. This tournament yeah. is on my racket. Yeah, it, it was a really brilliant turnaround after he saved the break point and held for four all in the third. He lost just two games for the rest of the match. He, yeah. he got the boomerang break in the third. Huge reaction after winning that set. And then he was immediately up in the fourth. And I think at some point Haas decided, okay, I'm not going to win this set, so I have to let it go and just try to recover in the fifth. So the fourth was a bagel. And I think the start of the fifth, Haas was trying to throw everything at Federer. I think the very beginning of the fifth was actually pretty competitive. I feel like there were a couple long rallies, and eventually, and Haas was just pushing and pushing, and he wasn't gaining any ground. And eventually, Federer just sort of like peeled his fingers off the edge of the cliff and um, Mm -hmm. and got the double break. And, uh, And yeah, and I think once he was through that, he just felt like, yeah, I I escaped death there, and now. And now, like, there's no need to be afraid because I've sort of stared the worst case scenario in the face. And so I think it was a very liberating match for him. Yeah. And just just for our listeners, um, the match that Andre was referring to, the 2012 Wimbledon uh, match against Beneteau, <laughs> there was a similar story in that because he was down two sets to love there. And once he got out of that, I mean, he went on to win the tournament and obviously beat uh, Djokovic and Murray to win it uh, in 2012. But uh, But in that match, I mean, when he was... When he was, it was not looking good for him, and he won the fourth set in a tiebreak uh, after being down two sets to love and winning the third. And then in the fifth, he just felt so liberated, and it was kind of a similar type story. It was an yeah. indoor match, and he won it six one, and just squeezed, just squeezed uh, the life out of his opponent. And uh, and and you know when he got on a roll, and um, in those days, it was it was tough to stop the the train. It was like, Bushum, yeah. train gone, goodbye. Yeah, it's kind of it's 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 the moment when the the trains and the and when the cameras is going to, are going to start filming the fans with the uh, the the sign saying uh, "Genius at work." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and then and then just just quickly on Haas, I mean, for that, even though he lost this match, I mean, it gave him a lot of confidence because um, I do remember after that he made the Halle final and he beat Djokovic in the final, and oh. he he beat two top ten players en route to that to that grass warm-up. He wins it in his hometown in Germany. And then he goes on and has a sensational run at Wimbledon and beats Djokovic again in the quarters and then plays Federer in the semis. So, yeah. you know, a loss that could have been so stinging and a defeat that would have put many players down for six months. Um, and you just lost a two sets of love lead and you had the, the best opportunity of your life to go even further in, at the French Open after so many injuries. He put that loss so quickly behind him and he, he yeah. had a phenomenal grass season. Yeah. So... So Tommy Haas, yeah. if you're listening to this, good job. Like yeah. I do I do have to say though, like I guess I guess when you when you come come back from, from a lengthy injury break, you, you kind of like yeah. look at things from a different perspective. And and honestly, that match probably showed him like, man, I can play tennis really well. <laughs> uh, uh, rather than man, I I sucked in those last two sets. Like I feel like it could have been it's it's more like an encouragement rather than uh but like I mean, yeah, yeah. obviously you're right. Like yeah. uh, there would be players who would even even still feel the pressure of that. But like honestly, like mm-hmm. uh, I guess he must have helped that he was just coming back to like 
being healthy again. Mm-hmm. So yeah. 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 And he was in the there. process. He was in the process of, you know, of his comeback and the comeback was tough. I mean, he, uh, if I remember, I mean, Haas didn't play after the 2008 U S open and he started out the season. I mean, he was playing the whole time until the French open, but he just wasn't having those, those results that mm-hmm. uh, I guess that you would expect from a top 20 player like him, you know, at the time. And so I guess you're right. I mean, it took time for him to build up that form and eventually he, eventually once he once he got those matches and he got that belief that I can hang now again back again with the top top players because he could always do that but it was just a matter of like sustaining it and being injury free enough so that he could you know he could he could be one of those players in that mix to get to later rounds of big events yeah and it was so impressive that he was even up two sets in the first place because let's not forget how hard it was to beat Federer on clay at the French Open in these days because he had made the final three years in a row before 2009, semis year before that, and Rafa was the only one who was beating him. So it was it was really impressive that he even got himself in a winning position in, in the first place, even if he didn't end up getting it done. Yeah, yeah. And now, if we uh, yeah. go ahead, yeah. So so now, uh, if we just continue on ahead, yeah, I mean, exactly. I was about to say, like, uh, <laughs> moving over to the to the, the into the quarterfinals, where um, yeah. Let me just say uh, the players were in the drop at that moment were um, Robin Sorling, who had just been Nadal, Nikolai Davidenko, mm-hmm. Andy Murray, Fernando Gonzalez, bless him, his forehand was amazing, um, Juan Martin yeah. Del Potro, Tommy Robredo, Gael Monfils, and Roger Federer. Mm-hmm. I actually signed out. I had a picture with uh, Fernando Gonzalez at the 2018 nice. Wimbledon. He couldn't wow. have been more nice. He was, he was, he was great. I actually walked like up nice to him. Guy. I walked up him to him and just told him how amazing his forehand was, and he was—he just started laughing and was amazing, and then just took a picture and was a great guy. That's so. awesome. I feel like that's exactly what the right thing to say was. Just go up, you have an amazing yeah. forehand. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, um, but but yeah. So I mean, then he played he played uh, Gail Monfils uh, in the quarterfinals, mm-hmm. and uh, you know Monfils and Federer <laughs> had actually played a four set match at the 2008 French Open semis, and Federer was. Uh, was pushed a lot in that match. It was almost four hours and four sets, and Federer took it seven five in the in the fourth. And after a match like Haas, um, after those three uh, three sets that he played, um, to then come against Monfils, he had another very tight opening for, for, uh, first set. And you know the crowd. I mean Monfils, we know what a showman he is and what kind of an athlete he is, and he can obviously match um, match the top players. But then something that happens with Monfils a lot is he's able to play on a really, really high level and challenge these top guys for about a set. And he expends a lot of energy and he's, he plays a very physical brand of tennis behind the baseline, but he's extremely quick and it's so tough to ace him or get the ball by him. And Federer was having to do that. And, you know, he was, you know, this tie break was close. It could have gone either way. And Federer took it eight, six, and he was down a mini break early on, if I'm remembering it correctly, but, it was uh, it was one of those like escapes that gives you a lot of confidence where you suddenly start you know applying pressure at the beginning of the second and third and you know that your opponent's level would drop and that's when monfis monfis level started to drop a little bit and federer just put the hands on the brakes and just said just accelerated through that second set and then one break was enough to get him over the finish line uh, with a few tight moments here and there in the third and so, and this was his uh, first top ten win of the tournament as well. Monfils number ten in the world at the time. So it was a good result for him, at least uh, to not play another five set physical match right after the the one against Haas. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, I I didn't watch highlights of this match either. Um, I did see the ones with Del Potro though, and and yeah, I think 
it was definitely impressive that he got through that tight first set. And then sort of, um, and then it was a little bit of a runaway train situation after that. Mm-hmm. And I think also there is a lot of pressure after you've just played a five setter to get through your, your next match quickly. Because if you start to let that become a pattern, eventually your body just won't be able to take it. So I think it was definitely impressive that he yeah. got through this one then, straight. Yeah, and yeah, then absolutely. Uh, Zverev uh, definitely agrees with you on that one. Yep. <laughs> on the five-setter <laughs> thing. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that I, I'm thinking about, like the this tiebreaker, is that like, as much said, like you could have gone either way. And yeah. if he had lost a tiebreaker, he, he, he could have easily just kind of like gone into his head like, well, here we go again, like another yeah. tie break that I lose. Yeah, like and, just beat Haas and like can't catch a yeah. break and yeah. Yeah, and plus Malfis is, is also the type of player that really just kind of um he he really likes the the energy and he when he wins he's he's winning. He starts to feel really good about himself and he kind of lets the adrenaline roll and in France, like he was probably playing on Chartrier at that point. So mm-hmm. um I would imagine that if Galmofis had won that set, he would have probably been a lot more difficult to beat in the la- in the next in the next set. He probably mm-hmm. should should Federer had taken it to the five set, he probably would have been gassed by the end of the fourth still. But like at the same time, I feel like he if this set was very, very important for Federer to win. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the thing is, even if he had come through this one. You know, would he have had enough left for the next round against Del Potro, who is in tip-top form? I mean, yeah, in hindsight, you know, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, 2009, we all remember Del Potro, but I think what's underrated is his French Open run because I mean, he beat some good quality players just to get to the semis. And I see he beat Tommy Robredo in the quarterfinals, who's a tough out on clay, and he'd made a bunch of quarterfinals of the French in a row. And so, for for so Del Potro was not an easy match at all, and obviously. He had played Del Potro in Madrid, so he knew what to expect there, and he he he'd won that match, uh, you know. But it was it was a tight two setter. It was three and four when he when they played there, and then obviously we remember the two thousand nine Australian Open quarterfinal, which, in my opinion, uh, you know, might be the most impressive display over a top ten player for Roger Federer that I could I could make the case certainly in his especially in his Australian Open career mm-hmm. when he absolutely embarrassed Juan Martin Del Potro with his with his brilliant tennis because Del Potro was sixth in the world and he won that match 6-3, 6 love, 6 love. So for Del Potro to come into this one, um, you know, he was going to have to have a completely different mindset. And, you know, and then here we go in the semis and Del Potro is up two sets to one. And, you know, Owen, if you want to talk a little a lot, lot more about this match, I'll, I'll hand the floor over to you for this. Sure, yeah. Something I remember throughout this match is just Federer being very, very pumped up. He's usually somewhat understated, but he was celebrating really consistently throughout this match, I remember. So he was down and set. And then in the second, he was serving at 4-5, love 30. So he was two points away, three times. Uh, love 30, 15, 30, 30 all from going down two sets again. And it must have just been going through his head like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening again. But he got out of it. And then he ended up winning the second set in a tie break. And I remember after he just kind of shrieks uh, like in celebration. And so the British commentator on one of the videos was like, that was the noise made by Roger Federer. And he seems kind of confused. Like at first he thought it was from the crowd. And I just think that shows like how excited Federer was because he was starting to sense that uh, I think that the end of the tournament was coming. Uh, He could start to sort of um, know that he was getting closer to the trophy. 
And credit mm-hmm. to Del Potro because he played really well. Uh, he won the third set in um, in pretty dominant fashion, 6-2. But then Federer um, came back to take the fourth 6-1 because he knew there was no margin for error left at that point. So he played a brilliant fourth set. And then in the fifth, he did really well to go up an early break. Uh, he he held for 3-1 with a really, really nice like slice winner. Uh, Del mm-hmm. Potro approached to his forehand and Federer passed him like sort of with a, a squash shot while sliding. I do remember that. that. And he, he hit like this backhand slice the cross court uh it was like a short drop shot yeah slice cross court and del potro, the over yeah del potro somehow ran all the way there and got it but then federer hits like this this slice pass on his forehand yeah cross court and i, I know which point you're talking about yeah exactly so. the, the the short backhand slice had such good width on it that um when he eventually hit the forehand pass he basically hit it down the middle because he had created so much space and it was a clean winner and then del potro eventually got the break back but Federer yeah. broke again right after that and uh, ended up serving it out seamlessly at 5-4. I think he finished with two forehand winners at 30-15 and 40-15. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, he had had to battle really, really hard. But in, in the big moments, he was better in that tie break. In uh, the big points in, in the fifth set, he took care of his serve really well with the exception of the one game where he was broken. And, and I think he, it was also impressive because, l- like we said, uh, Del Potro got absolutely thrashed by Federer at the Australian Open. He won three games. And so I think it was kind of amazing that Federer wasn't just sort of stunned by this level because Del Potro made a great, played a great match. But uh, Federer, um, he gave a little bit of ground. He lost two sets, but eventually he was ready and he just stormed back in the fourth and the fifth, losing just five games in those last two sets. And mm-hmm. yeah, and then he was in the final. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't get any easier because on the other side, uh, Robin Soderling proved that uh, you know, he's playing, he's he's actually, the, the win over Nadal was not just some kind of flash in the pan because he yeah. started, he then went on and beat Davidenko, another top 10 player. And he didn't just beat him. He beat him 6-1, 6-3, 6-1. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was not a close match. And Davidenko is obviously a phenomenal clay court player. He pushed Federer to three, three very tight sets in the 2007 French Open semis. And that was a fantastic match. One of, uh, one of the, one of the best clay court matches Federer's played during his prime, I'd say. Um, and so, so he wins that. And then he's playing against uh, Fernando Gonzalez in the next round. And while the Federer match also went to five sets, the Soderling for Gonzalez match also went to five sets. So Soderling won the first two sets, but then Gonzalez came back with his fearsome forehand and takes the, the mm-hmm. third and fourth. And then he's up a break in the fifth too. So for a while, it looks like we might have another Fernando Gonzalez might be able to get to his second ever major final because obviously he'd made the major final in 2007, yeah. uh, losing to Australian Open. Yeah, Australia. 2007 yeah. Australian Open, losing to Federer eventually. But he had set points uh, for to take the first set against Federer yeah. there. 5-4, so, 40-15. Yeah, and so, um, so, I mean, Soderling fought from a breakdown in the fifth and got it done against Gonzalez. And now now we're in the final and it's and it's the player who knocked out Nadal. So yeah. this is so in some ways I'd say, you know, people like to asterisk, you know, this tournament that, you know, if Nadal had been there, you know, Federer wouldn't have won. And that's true. You know, you you can't deny that because based on based on the results the the past four four seasons. But it's also not just that it opened the draw completely because yeah. Soderling backed up those wins. And so that's why he deserves so much credit because he he not only 
made the final in 2009. He then made the final again in 2010. Yeah, after and beating Federer, Federer in five. <laughs> yeah, after beating Federer in four sets in the quarterfinals um, from a set down too. And he he's the guy who ended Federer's streak of like Grand Slam semifinals. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and so... So he correct, beat. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it was either on that year or the next that uh, Robin Sterling was uh, coached by Magnus Norman, former world number two and yeah. finalist in the French Open. So I'm not exactly actually aware of the dates of the of the coaching, but I know that he okay. did help him in the in these French yeah. Opens to get there. It might have it might have been 2010. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I could I could be wrong on that. But you know, he played three really good French Open Soderling. He made two finals, and then yeah. in the 2011, he made the quarters and pushed Nadal to a tiebreak and lost there. But you know, he was either losing to Federer or Nadal, and he was beating one yeah. of the other two in two consecutive years. So from that standpoint, yeah, and so this also, is I think I don't believe in fate, but I feel like that it must have been a little bit of fate or justice or destiny or something that if Federer couldn't play Nadal in this final, it was mm. the guy who beat Nadal. Um, yeah. yeah sort of like one last vestige of the ghost or something like that. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, this, um, I, I feel like this was the right final considering like everything that had happened over the last two weeks and, um, yeah. and Federer came out and at this point, this may have been the most important match of his life. Um, would you guys agree with that? I would maybe? say it was the most important yeah. for sure, because if he doesn't take this chance, imagine the questions in press, imagine the, yeah. the doubts in his mind afterwards, imagine what he would you know, what yeah. would be said about his career now if he didn't have the career Grand Slam? You know, we'd be looking at him yeah. completely differently than yeah. we he are now. Have been a, 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 a... Um, so, sorry, I think you cut out a little bit that last bit. Could yeah. you uh, repeat Yeah, that? I figured it out because my, my USB cable sucked a bit. So, um, yeah, no worries. You would have been like just a little bit better... Uh, version of Pete Sampras, if you exactly. will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. he would have been like winning tons of Wimbledons and other tournaments, but no mm. French Open. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. 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 And I have to say, he came out like uh, exactly like he should have in the most important match of his life. He was, um, he was pretty imperious. I like he was, um, yeah. he was hitting drop shots. He had Soderling moving around at his mercy. Um, I think he had a return winner uh, to get the second break and, yeah. and just everything was going right. He was doing exactly what he needed to do. And so he took that first set six one. Yeah. yeah and also and... while, while Soderling uh, did beat Nadal and however reasons you want to give to that, like uh, Soderling is the type of player that Fred Federer likes to play in a way. Yeah. Like, I was just going to get to that. He's, uh, he's obviously no, he's, he's a little similar to, to Del Potro. So he, because of the big serve, big forehand combo, but mm-hmm. like he, he's the type of guy who just, Del Potro has a little bit more feel than Robin Soderling ever had. Yeah. Um, and Soderling is the type of guy who is, is the tall guy who hits, hits big from the baseline, hits big serves. And Roger likes that because he likes to work with base and like, you know, mm-hmm. not give that type of rhythm. So, um, he even though Soderling was the guy who beat Nadal, probably Federer had in his mind, and he, he was probably trying to convince himself um, the whole time. Um, as after he he uh, he figured that he would be playing him in the final, he was probably figuring um, convincing himself the whole time. I am beating a guy. I am playing a guy who has never been in a major final, um, mm-hmm. and this guy has a game that matches up well with mine. And he was probably like repeating that as a mantra in his head the whole time so that he could play well because it would have been easily like a, a tough like questioning for him. Like he beat Nadal. He may might might as well just beat me as well. Like because Nadal beats me all the time on clay. So 
Yeah. And I mean, this is a perfect illustration of just because player A beats player B doesn't mean that player A defeats uh, player, C. Know, player C. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So t- this just shows the tennis is about matchups. And, you know, if I were to ask you right now, a trivia question on the spot, you know, what do you, what do you guys think is Federer's head-to-head against Robin Soderling? Because you said he likes the matchup. So, uh, you know, what do you think is the overall head-to-head? Matt? Like 10-1. Okay. If, if they played that many times. Yes. So I'll tell you what the right answer is. Yeah. Um, Andre's a little closer. Wait, I, I mean, what did you guess, Owen? I said 7-0. So it's 16-1 and one in favor of Federer. So they played so the one many match times. That he lost. <laughs> yeah, and the one match that he lost ended his major semifinal streak. So, yeah. like, like from oh that my, standpoint, I, and he, we just talked about that match. Okay, sorry, yeah. I need like to feel the same for a second. No, I mean, I mean, like that's uh, you know, not, I don't think it's a very commonly known like because they played so many times in like a small stretch that it's like easy to forget like how how familiar Federer was with his game, like. You know, he had played he had played Soderling in Madrid, obviously, after the Rome match where so you know, actually another thing I just realized is Soderling came into this tournament having been thrashed by both Nadal and Federer back to back. Because he got thrashed by Nadal in Rome, and then Federer takes him out in Madrid. And that was not close either. That was straight sets. So so I, I mean Soderling would have probably I mean Soderling against Nadal, like he can he knows the game plan. You know, he knows he can take the if he takes the ball early, he it, it might be really, really tough to execute. And he might and you know, even then he's not the favorite. And Nadal still won that head to head seven two, but it's but at least he he has more time and he knows like what to do. And he knows he feels comfortable in his own skin in the rallies versus Federer who's constantly changing the rhythm. And you know, you mentioned the return. I mean you you actually describe it really well, Andre, the way you you talked about how Federer loves to absorb the pace of his opponent. And the return, I mean, he was standing in like near the baseline and just chipping these returns that were coming right in his right in his alley, and he was diffusing them with a slice. And then, and then he was just changing and mixing it up. So he never gave Soderling the same ball twice. I, I felt like when I watched these highlights, he was mixing it up with height, and then he was pushing Soderling back and making Soderling hit these backhands over cross court. But then Federer said, "Okay, I'll just use the slice. I'll make you come yeah. forward, mm-hmm. and I'll use my go-to, which is I'll hit the um, I'll hit a, I'll hit a short slice to your backhand, low and uncomfortable. So you have to get down really low and create all the pace, and then I'll just do a two-shot pass." Yeah. So I'll, yeah. I'll set it up with a nice pass. You'll come to the net where you're not as comfortable and then I'll pass you. And so Federer used this formula. And of course it helped that he served really well. Mm-hmm. And he got mm-hmm. that first set because Soderling had to have been nervous. I mean, this was his first major final. Like you said, the, the occasions and nerves of that are, it's a momentous occasion because you never know if you'll ever get there again. I mean, just ask Chilich in 2017, he was quite overcome with nerves. Yeah. So, and of course he struggled with blisters as well, but like, um, you know, Federer knew the formula but he had to execute it. And uh, I guess, you know, the second set was tight as well, right? If I'm not mistaken, it went to a tie break. Went to a tie break, yeah. And Federer took that. And there was also a moment in this match where um, this crazy intruder, a Federer fan of a Federer, fervent Federer supporter, uh, you know, just came into the crowd, uh, just just came from the crowd onto the court and just started waving a flag. And, you know, Federer was getting ready to serve, I believe. And Mm -hmm. he just stormed on, on the court and just started... You know, security had to be called and he had to get that guy escorted out immediately. But yeah, that must have been kind of a freakish moment to like reset. And yeah, definitely. I'm glad you brought that up. And I think that did unsettle him for a bit. Um, but I, I have to talk about this tiebreak that Federer played because I think mm-hmm. this may have been the best or one of the best tiebreaks he's played in his career. Um, you would think yeah. it would be a really, really pressured moment for him. Maybe you would get some tight misses because he's, he's playing for a basically insurmountable lead in the biggest match of his life. 
And and Soderling hits one ace in this tiebreak. Federer hits four aces. He hits a drop shot winner, and then he forces two errors, one with the forehands down the line, one with the backhands down the line. So Soderling makes no unforced errors, and he loses the tiebreak 7-1 anyway. Um, yeah. And so this was just an imperious, imperious tiebreak. Uh, he couldn't have played it any better. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I guess in the third set, you know, victory is getting closer. He can feel the trophy in his mind now. And, uh, you know, Soderlin serving first in that third set, I guess he's just kind of looking to get that break. And I guess once he did it, I mean, what did, what were your impressions when he was getting ready to serve for this match and just knowing what he's about to accomplish? Well, I think he's he's spoken briefly about this, and I think he said all that was running through his head was just like, please somehow win the game. Um, And and I think that sums it up. Like when you're that close, even if you're still in a good position at two sets up and five all, like you don't want it to go on for any longer than it has to. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I can't imagine the pressure that he must have felt at that moment with um, with that goal of the career slam that had been eluding him since 2005. um, That close. Um, so it, it's amazing that he was able to get over the line. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, I believe the match point was uh, a missed return from some. Um, yeah, it, it was a service winner. And, and Soderling actually had a break. Just, I'm just watching right now, so I'm just I'm going to check uh, it yeah. out. Yeah, <laughs> it was a it was a Federer hit a serve down the middle, and uh, Soderling hit a forehand into the net. Yeah, and then Federer right. was like on his knees. That's pretty huge. But this time he 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 got up a bit, and then he just kind of like got down again because he he probably just didn't know what to do like that, that's the moment that i remember most clearly yeah. is federer just like dropping down his knees on the ground if I, yeah. I feel like if i'm remembering correctly he put his yeah he hand put his, on hands, his, like, his hand his, on his face yeah, he put his, his hand palms. like in sort of like a like a receiving like position like he was like getting something yeah. from somebody and just put his, put his hand like on his face and then he took a ball and just whacked it into the crowd because yeah. he was so just so ecstatic and overwhelmed with emotions and yeah. I guess he was also in tears during the, the press conference, yeah. uh, during the trophy ceremony. And it's kind of funny because two kinds of tears, tears of joy and tears of, you know, absolute uh, joy. And, yeah. you know, and, Federer experienced both in the back of four months, yeah. one, one off of a defeat and one off of a, a victory. So yeah. it must have felt so sweet. Yeah, that's true. Federer seemed more overwhelmed in his reaction to winning this one than any other major I've seen. He, um, he just yells and falls to the clay. And I, I think he might've actually kissed the clay or come very yeah. close to it. He sort of brings his head all the way down. Um, and, and in the trophy ceremony, I absolutely love that Andre Agassi hands him the trophy. who was oh, another great ATP player who, who had chased the French open for a huge chunk of his career. Yeah. At times it didn't yeah. seem like he would get it. And then he finally did. And it was one of the greatest moments of his career. So I thought, absolutely. um, couldn't have picked a better person to, um, to hand him the trophy and, and yeah, yeah, he had he had achieved the dream. Uh, career slam was complete, and he had equaled Pete Sampras's uh, fourteen major titles. Yeah, yeah, and this was this this was only he was only this became just the sixth man in the Open era to have won the career slam. And you know, Andre Agassi was the last one in nineteen ninety nine at the French Open. So it was a ten year anniversary, also celebrating him mm-hmm. and his achievement. And this is a guy who had retired, you know, two and a half years before at the U.S. Open. So to see, and then Federer and Agassi, obviously, they had a kind of a good rivalry where they played 11 matches. So I agree. I mean, Agassi handing that is, is like a symbolic moment of kind of, you know, I, I did this 10 years ago and I'm, this is my celebration as well as yours. And uh, they shared, they shared a really nice moment there. And 
yeah, it was it was great to see. And of course, then Nadal and Djokovic come along, and then they also achieve the career slams. So yeah, Nadal did, does it like the very next year. And... Yeah, yeah, U- at the U.S. US Open. Open the year after. Yeah. So yeah, and and Djokovic would do it at Roland Garros in 2016. It was it was sort of a similar situation to Federer's mm-hmm. because it was mm-hmm. the last one he had gotten. He had had to work really hard for it. He was blocked by the same guy, and then eventually he. Um, won a four set final yeah yeah even though Djokovic also... did did beat Nadal he was not the it, it wasn't he the same wanted. year yeah they, they, they should have had Federer but... give him the trophy even though he was still an active player at that point <laughs> that <would've been> nice. <laughs> yeah no just well if, if things had had gone like people had predicted back in like 2010 then he would have been Federer would have been then, retired yeah. but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I mean yeah it's amazing to think also that uh you know the year that Djokovic won I mean so, so if we just look at it now, I mean, Nadal has lost twice at the French Open, once to Soderling in 2009 and once to Djokovic in 2015 in the quarters. But the 2009 one, you know, although Soderling played absolutely out of his mind and absolutely full credit to him, so well-deserved, um, it must be said, uh, Rafa fans pointed out to me all the time on Twitter that uh, Nadal, although playing some of his best tennis in, the, in his whole career and the amount of matches that he would have played in 2009 and the lead that he had on number one, um, I think he was also simultaneously going through a difficult patch in his personal life because he had he was dealing with the divorce of his parents, so that mm. couldn't have been easy. And then obviously he he also was struggling a little bit with some kind of a fever or injury um, during that whole tournament, not just the Soderling match. And so I think the combination of the two and a really really cloudy day as well, where the ball doesn't jump up quite as high as he would like on his vicious topspin. And was just landing a little bit too short, a little too often for his liking. And Soderling absolutely took full advantage of it. And it was just one of those rare days. And it's just so unbelievable that it's only happened one other time uh, yeah. since then. And, you know, even in 2016, uh, you know, Nadal came into that, to the French Open, having won Barcelona and Monte yeah. Carlo. And he did and, well in Rome, too. He was in pretty good he, form. And he did well in Rome. And they had the good match, uh, Djokovic and Nadal in the quarters. But, uh, you know, Nadal was struggling with an inflamed li- uh, wrist injury and so he had to pull out in his second uh, after his second round win he had to pull out in the he was about to play Marcel Granollers in the third round so mm-hmm. he, he pulled out of that and you know and obviously Federer wasn't in the 2016 French Open as well with injury so you had both Federer and Nadal kind of not there and this was the time of Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic and obviously Djokovic then achieves the slam feat in 2016 yeah but yeah, and, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah I guess the I guess that really covers it, right? Like a yeah. Roger Federer's uh, 2009 run was yeah. very iconic for, for his entire career, for his life. It's definitely one of the moments that he's going to remember the most fondly, yeah. like once he retires, um, which is um, either you want, you like it or not, it's coming sooner rather than later at this point in his life. Um, yeah. Just today he lost a match uh, in Geneva against Pablo Antohar and... Uh, he wasn't playing at his best. He felt a little rusty. He may still find his 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 range back and when he goes back to to Wimbledon, but he's he's forty now, uh, and I guess the moment is coming when people are going to be writing books about his 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 biography and his career. And, I think and that's definitely going to be them. a full. Sorry, people are already writing them. I think. I oh yeah, but they're going to have like a, 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 a different having it. Yeah. 
They've been having it in drafts since 2008. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm just the, waiting, waiting for the day. Yeah, just waiting for him to call it after the 2012. They, Olympics, yeah, so. they probably yeah. will have like maybe an entire book about just this one tournament. <laughs> it's a possibility. You could, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, actually, there's a book on Roger Federer. For those of you Federer fans out there, I highly recommend. It's called uh, Roger Federer: The Quest for Perfection. Um, it's written by a well-known Swiss journalist. His name is Rene Stoffer. And the the book, the central theme is everything kind of about Federer's career and upbringing and solving Nadal is a huge, huge part of the the clay piece in that book. And there's a huge, like, great illustrations and visualizations in your head that uh, um, Rene Stoffer is a brilliant writer and very lyrical, but also statistical. And so I, I got some great insight in that um, right. as to what that achievement actually meant for for Federer and his fans. So I'm um, right. definitely one to check out for it. Right. Well, there you go. I think I'm, I might, I might look for, for that one and just put the link up in the description on Amazon. Not a yeah. sponsor at all, but like whatever. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I have yeah. to read this like lyrical and statistical sounds like a blend between a Scott Barclay and Vonch. So I think you definitely <laughs> have to check that out. It's, it's, it sounds like right up Owen's alley. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess um, that that'll be it. I hope you enjoyed it. Let us know if we, uh, if we missed something, obviously it was a, a tournament with 128 players in it, excluding the qualifying draw. So um, if you have other stories that you want to uh, share with us about this tournament and about Roger <laughs> Federer's career, um, you can share us on Twitter to us on, well, on Twitter um, for with me. I am at Rollenberg Andre. Um, Owen is at Tennis Nation. Man, I don't know why I keep forgetting those stuff. I think I feel like I'm You're just really, good. really tired. And Vansh is at Vansh V2K. And Tennis and Bagels is at Tennis and Bagels. Very simple. So yeah, chat with us and share this episode if you like it. And if you're listening on iTunes, you can give us a rating as well. And also don't forget um, to follow uh, every tournament, your favorite tournaments um, of your favorite sport on the TNNS app. It's a great app, a great substitute to the old ATP WTA app. And um, honestly, it's the one that I use most often in you can get everything there, including um, highlights. Uh, I don't know if we have press conferences, but they also have podcasts, including this one that you're listening right now. If you made it this far, you're a champ. So yeah, go give them some love and download their app too. Um, and we'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye.